We're going to continue today in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, please uh, turn there. Otherwise, you can just look at the screen. But I do want to start off by mentioning this, that we just finished John chapter 3. Uh, Dave Zydek, didn't he do a great job when he taught? Yeah, thank you, Dave. God bless you, brother. Thank you for that. But John chapter 3 is where Jesus connects with a very religious, moral man. Now watch this. Jesus was very clear with him. It does not matter, Nicodemus, how moral you are. Your greatest works is like filthy rags to God. Your offerings, I hate. God cannot accept even our offerings because we have to be born again, Jesus said. So here the first guy we see Jesus ministering to is a very, very moral man. And Christianity oftentimes take on the form of moralism. The guy has to be a Christian. Why? Because he's so moral. Or we try and win somebody over to Christianity by explaining to them morality. We say, well, you have to stop drinking, stop smoking, stop sleeping around, stop, stop this, stop that. And we give them a whole long list of things that they have to stop doing. Then we hand them a, a longer list of the things that they should start doing. And this is Christianity. Well, Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, no, that's not what it is. Because think about it. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He was a Pharisee. But he was also part of the Sanhedrin. He was the one telling everybody how to live, yet he himself knew that he didn't live up to God's standards. He knew he was a fraud. He knew he was fake. He knew he needed salvation, even though he was holding everybody accountable to the very things he failed at himself. And so we see Jesus ministering to this very moral man in chapter 3. Then we come to chapter 4. Who does Jesus minister in chapter 4? The woman at the well, an immoral woman. A sexually immoral woman. Not even a Jew, but a Samaritan. And so today I want to encourage you that this is for you today. Because it doesn't matter where you come from. Your morality doesn't qualify you. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Your morality doesn't qualify you. Your immorality didn't disqualify you to come to the cross. Both the moral and the immoral are equally in need of the cross. Jesus redeems the sexually broken. He doesn't leave them where they're at. He delivers them out of what they're into. The rainbow doesn't say that God refuses to ever judge you again. That's not what it says. Unfortunately, that was misinterpreted. And there's a lot of comfort given to a whole entire people's group or a whole entire group of people that was false comfort. Actually, I will take that. Thank you, Bruce. So my point is, just know this, that God <clears throat> has come to redeem. Just so you know, I have no, my voice doesn't hurt at all. Thank you, Bruce. It's just gone. 
I know sometimes when I listen to somebody talk that has a raspy voice, then I feel like I hurt for them. Jesus came to save the most moral person you know and equally save the most sexually immoral, broken person you know. And we have to oftentimes make sure that our hearts in ministering to people are pure. That we don't tend to first minister to or prefer to minister to the moral and reject the immoral because they're destroying our nation or they're destroying the fiber of our, of our society. Jesus came to save all. And that is why chapter 4 happened. Chapter 4 of John. And as we do, we see that Jesus evangelizes the Samaritan woman at the well. So let's read from verse 1 through 15, and we're going to walk through it. We're going to allow the Holy Spirit, who wrote these verses, this is what the Holy Spirit is telling you and I today. We're going to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, the Holy Spirit to create the narrative. I'm not going to teach you how to make a million dollars today. I'm not going to teach you how to be happy. I'm going to just tell you what the Bible says, okay? It says in verse 1, So then, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he, was making, that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. Let's just pause there. Why did Jesus leave the moment he realized more people were coming to him than to John? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, John needed to continue his ministry. And number two, that everybody started noticing that Jesus was becoming more prominent and Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. Now, he said that many times. My time had not yet come. My time has not yet come. What did he mean by that? My time of death has not yet come. So he knew that he was stirring the waters and there, there was going to be a, a persecution of him that wasn't time for it yet. So Jesus leaves Judea. Verse 3, he left Judea, went away again to Galilee. It's 20 miles away. Well, excuse me. He went to Galilee. Let me just say that. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. That's where the Samaritans live. Now, how many of you know that if anybody does anything good, usually somebody points to him and says, well, that's a real good Samaritan, right? Because of the good Samaritan story in the Bible. Well, this is where they lived. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sikar, Sikar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was just sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. <clears throat> now, oftentimes when you hear something like it was the sixth hour, you don't know at what point this was. But usually the first hour is sunrise, which is six o'clock. And the sixth hour is six hours after that, which makes it what? High noon, middle of the day. So this is when Jesus gets to this well, and the Bible says that he was tired, and he sits down. In other words, we see Jesus' humanity as he, God Almighty, is now tired from his travel. Jesus and his disciples most probably left Judea at sunrise, which is 6 a.m. in the morning, and uh, walked to Sychar, which approximately is 20 miles away from where they left. So they just walked 20 miles, and it is now noon. 
So they walked for approximately six hours, and they covered 20 miles. So I had to do this. I actually Googled this. And I'm and I trying to figure out how far can I walk in one mile? Oh, excuse me. <laughs> you got it. How long would it take me to walk one mile? I'm just checking to see if you're awake. The average person, it says, walks approximately two, two miles per hour. A good range should be anywhere from one to four. If you are walking five miles or more in an hour, you are no longer walking but rather jogging or running. All right, so here I, I worked it out. That means for them to cover 20 miles in six hours, they did not quite jog, but they walked fast. So they were packed with their bags and everything. Jesus and his disciples through the fields, down the road, up and down the hills, walked for six hours fast pace in order to get from Judea to their town in Samaria. You can imagine if you walked a tight, fast-paced walk with all your baggage for six miles through the fields, up and down the hills. By noon, hot sun. I said six hours, right? They walked for six hours, and they walked fast, and they covered 20 miles. Uh, you too and I would be very tired, and so Jesus was really tired. So um, <clears throat> the word tired there in the original does not just say, I'm, I'm, I'm tired, I want to sit down a bit. It actually speaks to being exhausted. Jesus was exhausted. And at that point, verse 7 says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So let's just pause there and look at that. Give, he says to her, Give me a drink. This was huge. And today we don't know why it was big, but it was so big in that day because it was normal for women to come to the well early in the morning or later in the afternoon. Think about this. Why would they come early in the morning or late in the afternoon? Because it gets extremely hot there. Secondly, women would come in groups to the well. They would never come alone. However, this woman comes at noon while there is nobody there, and she comes alone. She comes by herself. I assume to escape all of the gossip, and to, to escape the looks and the slander. She was obviously marginalized in her community, most probably because of her promiscuity and her reputation for sexual immorality. Yet here comes this stranger, this Jew, and he asks her for a drink of water. Verse 9, So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This woman was shocked that she was approached by a Jewish man. And there are three reasons for it. Number one, she was a Samaritan. Who were the Samaritans? They were half-breeds between Jews and pagans. The Jews hated him, the pagans hated him. They hated the Jews, they hated the pagans. <laughs> there was so much animosity, there was so much racism between those groups, and it's everywhere all the time. She was a Samaritan, and she was a half-breed, knowing that if this man knew, which of course he did, 
that she was, Samarit she was a Samaritan, he would never have asked her for a drink. But secondly, why it was shocking was because she was a woman. In ancient days, and in that culture even to this day, they don't talk to women in public. Thirdly, she was a woman with a bad reputation because of her sexual past. So also consider the fact that not only did men not speak to women in public unless they knew them, rabbis never taught women, especially not ones with a reputation for being promiscuous. Jesus didn't have friendly dealings with Samaritans, or Jews didn't have friendly dealings with Samaritans, since Jews saw Samaritans as impure. They were not allowed to use the Samaritans' utensils. In other words, they weren't allowed to use anything that they ate out of because they saw them as dogs. They weren't allowed to drink from their cup because they were so racist towards the Samaritans. But here's this Jew. He walks up to her, and he says, why don't you give me a drink? She's shocked. You see, these facts <clears throat> about the woman places her category that, uh, you know, into a very different category, very radically different than that of Nicodemus. Jesus just ministered to Nicodemus, the moral man, now is ministering to the Samaritan, this immoral woman. But let's just draw a couple of comparisons. You see, Nicodemus was known for keeping the law. Samaritans were known for their heresy because they believed in the five books of Moses, but they rejected the prophets and they rejected the writings. Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and so forth. So they were seen as heretics. So we first see that Nicodemus was known by keeping the law and Samaritans were known for the heresy and her especially for her promiscuity. Secondly, we see that Nicodemus was a Jew and a ruler in the Sanhedrin, very prominent man. She was a Samaritan and an adulterer, marginalized even in her broken culture. Thirdly, we see that Nicodemus would have studied the law, but as a woman, she would not have been formally taught the law. He knew a lot. She knew nothing. Jesus went to both. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Jesus went to both. He was moral, she was immoral, Jesus went to both. He loved both, he tried to save both. I don't like what I just said there, try to save both. He brought the gospel to both. Then we see number four, Nicodemus seeks out and initiates a conversation with Jesus. It was Nicodemus that wanted to talk to Jesus. However, she on the other hand, this promiscuous woman, she on the other hand, she was minding her own business. She wasn't even seeking. She wasn't even asking. She couldn't care less. She was just shocked. Nicodemus initiated a conversation with Jesus when Jesus initiates a conversation with this woman. Nicodemus comes to Christ when it is fully dark. The woman comes to the well in the middle of daylight. Nicodemus does not, does not ask to be spiritually born. He's moral, remember? And this is usually the problem. He's prominent, remember? He's well known. He was the third wealthiest man or one of the three wealthiest men in Israel. He doesn't ask Jesus to be spiritually born, even though Jesus spent the whole night 
talking to him about it. This broken woman, marginalized, viewed as dogs by the Jews themselves, asks Jesus for living water. Who do you think blesses God's heart? Now we believe, I hope to, that Nicodemus, since he was involved with Christ's burial, I really believe that he got saved. But this woman was desperate. She was thirsty. Verse 10, the Bible says, Jesus replied to her. Just to connect the dots. In verse 9, she says, verse 9, she says, So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink? And I am a Samaritan woman. Verse 10, Jesus replied to her, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. How do you receive living water? How do you receive the gift you ask? He says, you would have asked me. I need to say it right here. If you need God's saving grace, if you need to be saved, you know that you're on the outside and you need to be saved by God. Ask. He will give. Ask. He will give. How will He give it to you? He will give you a heart that repents. He will give you a heart that believes. So Jesus replied, if you, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew how great the salvation is and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She then says to him this, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how with Nicodemus, when Jesus said, you must be born again, he said, how can I get, how can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says to this woman, I will give you living waters. She goes, you have no bucket. <laughs> Sir, you have no bucket. And secondly, the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Many commentaries believe that she was being sarcastic. Verse 12, you are, you are no greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. This is an eternal spring, the eternal fountain of youth. You will live forever this fountain of life will be inside of the person who receives this believing heart that repents, filled with the Holy Ghost that is sealed for the day of redemption for all eternity. That's if you drink the water that I give you. But whoever drinks the water from this well, they'll be thirsty again. See, when Jesus talked about being thirsty and quenching your thirst, he was 
pointing to that which satisfies eternally, which is, of course, being made alive in Christ, which is being justified through faith in Christ, which is being made righteous with God's righteousness in Christ. That is the only thing that satisfies wholly and completely. Jesus basically said to her, if you drink from Jacob's well, you're going to have to come back tomorrow again because you will you'll become thirsty again in the natural. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. You will be fulfilled. You will be satisfied eternally. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. It seems like she still misunderstood him. Verse 16, he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. <laughs> hey, yeah, why don't you give me what you're offering? He says, Well, then go get your husband. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. You have had five husbands. And the one you now have is actually not your husband. This which you have said is true. In other words, you've been divorced five times, Jesus says to her. And you're currently living with the sixth man. You're not even married to him. Now think about this portion right here. She says, I want that living water you're talking about. Jesus says, okay, go get your husband. Well, what does that have to do with anything, Jesus? You're offering me living waters. Don't, don't meddle in my stuff. Just give me what you're offering me. You see, little did she know, Jesus was pointing to something that was true about her. He was like an onion. When you peel off every layer, he was peeling off where he was going. And, and first, he was, he was pointing out her depravity. There's a ring there, Bruce. He was pointing out her depravity. He was showing to her what he was saving her from. Her fallenness, her sinfulness. Every gospel presentation rests on first knowing your need for salvation from sin. Most people, if you ask them, what did Jesus save you from? They'll say what? Hell. Well, that's the wrong answer. The Bible is very clear. Jesus came to save us from, the, from, from, from sin and its power and its consequence, which is death. Jesus came to save us from sin. Remember? Adam and Eve sinned, and Jesus came to redeem us from what happened, which is sin. They fell because of sin, and we will be restored because we've been redeemed from sin. Now, yeah, we are going to go to heaven because of that, but heaven is the after effect of being saved from the power and the consequence of sin by Christ Jesus. Every gospel presentation rests on first knowing your need for salvation. Jesus doesn't save people who come to him to be saved from what he didn't save them from. <laughs> right? How about this? If you say, well, Jacques, that doesn't make sense. I'll give you a great example. Jesus, I want you to save me from aging. <laughs> he goes, I didn't come to save you from aging. <laughs> For every man has been appointed once to die. Right? 
So he didn't come to save us from, the, from, from whatever we want to be saved from. He came to save us from what we needed to be saved from, and that is sin. So first he was about to, he's pointing out her depravity, showing her what he came to save her from, showing her the need that she really has. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion that very clearly articulates man's number one need and man's only solution to that need? Man's one problem, sin. And God's solution to that, pro that sin problem. Christianity is the only religion that points out those two issues. And here he was helping her understand that. But secondly, the reason Jesus said, go, go, you know, call your husband and come here. He was showing that she was already digging for wells. I know you are already searching. I know you are already attempting to find a solution to your problem. He was showing her that she was already digging for wells, looking for soul satisfaction. She was seeking for satisfaction for something that would fulfill her, but she was seeking for that in men. Very obviously. And if you are trying to find soul satisfaction somewhere outside of Christ, you will thirst again, always. And that's his point to her. If you're seeking to find soul satisfaction, fulfillment and contentment anywhere outside of Jesus Christ, you will always thirst again. It doesn't matter if you seek it in the next relationship, if you seek it in the next career path, if you seek it in your next achievement, you will always thirst again. Jesus said, I am the end. I am the end of all of your thirst. And you will, no, you will never find another way around it. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that, the, that, that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. I actually love this portion right here. I'm, please forgive me for my voice. I feel so bad about it. I wish I could change it. But here's, it's so interesting. Um, Jesus is telling her, okay, he kind of pulls, pulls back the curtains a little bit, and he says, go call your husband. And she goes, okay, well, well, what's that all about? She says, I don't have one. She's almost trying to get away from that conversation. And then he just kind of like flips the light switch, right? And he says, okay, you, like every other human being, even in this room, Every one of us came to the cross not healed. We came to the cross to be healed. None of us came to the cross because we were righteous. We came to the cross because we were unrighteous and broken in our sins and our sexual sins. And we can come back to God or we come to God at the cross because of it. Right? And so Jesus was revealing something to her. And then she goes, okay, well... What about worship? You guys say we're supposed to go worship. It's almost like she tried to get away from that conversation again. Now she's becoming theological. Okay, you, uh, She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem, is, in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. 
So there are these two places of worship where the Samaritans are supposed to worship and the Jews are supposed to worship. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain where you worship Him nor in Jerusalem where the Jews are worshiping Him. Your Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and even now has arrived where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. He's looking for your sincere worship. Jesus is telling her, I'm making temples unnecessary. Whether it be the Samaritan temple or the Jewish temple, I have come to make these temples unnecessary because I am the one you need. And I'm all you need. You need nothing else. Thirst is quenched here and here alone. And I have come to make those of no effect. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. I am he, the one speaking to you. You see, Jesus says, I've come to give you water. Even though he asked her for water, he opened up a conversation. And then he says, but I've come to give you the water, the eternal water or the eternal life. Jesus is saying, I have something that is satisfying to your soul as water is to your parched mouth. What you work for every day to get, I'm going to give to you free. How many of you have at one time in your life gone without water for longer than you should? You became so extremely parched. Maybe it was also in the middle of summer and it was really hot. And then when you got that glass of cold, refreshing water, you took a tiny little sip like that, and you go, oh, that was, that was sufficient. That was awesome. No, nobody did that, right? You started drinking, and it was just so satisfying. And you just started gulping it down, and you couldn't get enough of it fast enough, right? You just drank and drank and drank and drank and drank. Well, that's an important concept. Because the same thing is true for the grace of God to the thirsty. The exact same thing. When the, when the thirsty tastes the grace of God, the goodness of God, His forgiveness, and, he, and His love towards you, it is like they can't get enough of it. Now, you've seen this before. Somebody actually comes into the knowledge of God, and suddenly they become radical. Ever, heard, ever seen that? And then their family becomes worried about them. Because now, yeah, they went to that church, and you know, like now they're so radical. Because that's all they want to talk about now. They live differently. They, 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 this is the sign of a person who's truly been touched by God, is their values change. I used to value all these things in the world so much. Now suddenly, none of that is as valuable as this. I used to fear all these things, being rejected by these people. Suddenly, I don't care. The only one I don't want to be rejected by is God. Suddenly, your value system changes. When your values change, guess what else? Your goals start changing. 
When your goals start changing, guess what? Your priorities change. When your priorities change, guess what? You look at the world differently, and you go, they go like, what happened to them? They went to that church, their whole entire worldview changed. They become so radical. <laughs> well, by the way, the word radic, radical is, comes from the word root. And so they have, from the bottom up, changed, <laughs> become different. They are not still a pear tree bearing, now bearing apples. No, they've completely become an apple tree, <laughs> right? And so people go like, well, they've become so radical. No, what really happened was when God touched your heart with His grace, it was like you've been so thirsty in such desperate need for what He has to offer, you couldn't just take a sip. You had to start drinking and drinking, and more you, the more you drank, the more you wanted to drink it, right? You see, you please the lawgiver because you have to. This is how the Jews lived. You please the lawgiver because you have to, but you please the grace giver because now you want to. It's not that you have to drink that water. It's that you desire it more than anything else. It's not that I have to praise God. It's I love praising God. It's not that I have to, you know, give myself to the body of Christ. It's, it's that I love to do it. I, I get it. It is so, um, um, it, it makes me come alive, right? Getting into the Word of God, it's an absolute pleasure. But more than it, it's like a necessity for me, just like it is when you have been parched for a long time and you get some water and you start drinking. You feel like, oh, I've got to, I, just, I just have to have more. And that's what the things of God becomes to the one who's been touched by the grace of God. You please the grace giver because you desire to. Above all else, you are urgent to. So how can Jesus offer this woman, this radical promise that she will never thirst again. How can he say you will never thirst again? Because he knew that his hour of death was about to, about to be there. And at that moment, he will say, I thirst. So that they will no longer have to. So I have just three conclusions, and then we're going to close. The first is, most share the gospel with people who have come to them and say, you know, what must I do to be saved? Now, that doesn't happen a lot. That hardly ever happens. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, hey, what must I do to be saved? Hardly ever, right? <clears throat> it does happen once in a blue moon when somebody goes like, yeah, how do I get saved? For most part, people are the opposite. You have to come to them and you have to initiate something. This is the two people we see Jesus ministering to. Nicodemus came to him and said to him, what must I do to be saved? But this Samaritan woman, she, she was completely, completely oblivious. Jesus came to her and offered her something she couldn't refuse. And so, are we waiting for somebody to come and ask us, what must I do to be saved? Jacques, what must I do? Or, do we start conversations with people at the water fountain?
Do we start conversations with people when we have the opportunity? Secondly, Jews were racists. So were the Samaritans against each other. You and I have been given the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every tribe, to every tongue, and every nation. I actually think God makes it a point for people to reach out into different people's groups, but not just people's groups, but also people at different levels of life. And thirdly, obviously, Jesus ministered to a Nicodemus known for his morality and then later on to a very immoral woman. So my question is, does the morality of the person you minister to make you think that they are an easier target? Because let me just tell you, <laughs> it's, it's actually easier to minister to the person who is very obviously lost and very obviously in the world and very obviously godless than to minister to the person who's very moral and has his act together like Nicodemus. And very oftentimes what we do is we think that the person who's very moral, they think clearly, and therefore they will understand the gospel in a greater way. But this person who's completely lost, you think that that person can't hear you. Well, let me just tell you, God knows who he's reaching, and he is going to reach them. With or without me, with or without you, he is going to reach them. But he gives you and I the opportunity to participate in what he's already doing. You see, God is sovereign over salvation, but he's also sovereign over the means of that salvation. He's sovereign over the fact that somebody's going to get saved, but he's also sovereign over how that person's going to come and hear the word of God because God sends people. And so God gives us this opportunity. He gives us this opportunity to be a part of what he is going to do with or without us. Yeah. <laughs> we, God's plan does not hang on me. God's plan for humanity. People see themselves that way. I don't see myself that way. God's plans cannot be thwarted, the Bible says. No man can stop God from doing what he's going to do. Why do you think, here comes, here comes Saul on his donkey, and suddenly God just saves him. God's plans cannot be stopped. No man can stop it. But what we do get is the opportunity to jump in, become active, and become part of what God is doing. And therefore, one day in heaven, when God hands out the crowns, there is a crown for the soul winner. And you go, well, if God's going to do what God's going to do, well, why, why even pray? I always hear people say that. Why, why pray? Why pray? God's going to do whatever he's going to do. Well, um, here's one answer, and it's not going to satisfy you. The second answer might, but the first won't. Uh, why pray? Well, he asked you to. Pray the Lord of the harvest. It's like, well, he's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Then I'm not praying, even if he asked me. Well, that's nice. <laughs> that kind of reveals something. Okay, so you see, you see what people do is they won't pray because they don't see any personal benefit in it. They only do what they see will benefit them now, right? But how about if God says, I want you to do something for me, and you know what? 
you'll get nothing out of it. And you go like, well, then I'm not doing it. <laughs> and that's what those people do when they say, well, if God's sovereign, why pray? Well, because he asked you to. It was a command to start off with. But, number two, he asked you to pray because he's giving you an opportunity to, again, insert yourself into what he's going to do with or without you. I get to pray. I get to be a part of what God is doing. I've been privileged to be called into his family, into he, my father's business. This is what Jesus said, woman, to his mother, woman, you know that I'm, I'm about my father's business. He didn't say it there. He said it later. Okay, but point, point taken. He said it, he said it when, he, when he turned the water into wine. But he said to his mother, I'm about my father's business. And, you know, you and I, we don't have to pray. But imagine if we did. We get to. It's a privilege. We don't have to evangelize. We get to. It's a privilege. We give ourselves to what God is already doing. What a privilege it is to be not just part of God's family, but He also gives us the opportunity to be part of the mission, the Father's mission. Amen? Amen. 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 Do you get something out of the Word this morning? Yeah. Amen.